Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded, recently hitting 6 million listens. Support us by buying a copy of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a small donation. In return, we'll give you the chance to nominate a guest and even win lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. Find out more at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin! Welcome to Masterclass U.S. Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. This show has been designed to demystify the U.S. market for Italian wineries through interviews with experts in sales and distribution, social media, communications, and so much more. We will quiz each of our esteemed guests at the end of each episode to solidify the lessons that we've learned. So sharpen your pencils, get out your notebooks, and join us each week to learn more about the U.S. market. Hello, welcome to Masterclass U.S. Wine Market. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Melissa Smith to the Italian Wine Podcast. Forbes and Rep Report recognized wine appraiser, expert witness, certified sommelier, and the founder of Enotrias Elite Sommelier Services and the creator of the Wine Collecting Masterclass. Melissa L. Smith serves as a writer, speaker, and educator specializing in wine, wine collecting, and wine travel. Welcome to the show, Melissa. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So before we dive into today's discussion about collecting wine and wine collectors, Melissa, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into this world of fine wine collecting and cellar management. Absolutely. So I started my career as a fine dining chef. I had moved to Napa Valley the week I graduated high school and worked at some of the top restaurants in Napa Valley, including a stint at the French Laundry. I would spend my weekends or time off in tasting rooms. I wasn't being carted, so I actually got into a lot of wineries and just really enjoyed learning wine and and spent the next several years working as a chef around the country and did a little bit of travel, lived and worked in Japan for a bit, and then came back to the U.S., worked in some restaurants and then worked as a private chef. And that's kind of when I decided I'd rather get paid to drink for a living. So went through the quartermaster sommeliers training, became a certified sommelier, worked for k Wine Merchants as the head sommelier for that company. And while I was there, we'd get a lot of calls for people needing their wine cellars organized, inventoried, and assigned valuations for legal purposes like you know divorce and death so i started taking on those clients and really thrived doing that and had to argue the valuation or lack of evaluation for a high profile client and i told my best friends about it who are also attorneys and they said you should turn this into a legal topic so i turned it into the uh, wine collecting and wine valuation seminar that is now a uh, seminar that is considered continuing education for family law and trust and estates attorneys around the country. And that one hour seminar became a seminar that I turned into one that I would give for wine enthusiasts that were looking to get into wine collecting. And I took all of that information and turned it into the Wine Collecting Masterclass, which is an online three-hour seminar that's a deep dive into wine collecting for personal enjoyment as well as for investing. Really interesting. So I love your story and how you kind of came into this world. 
they're not by accident, but, you know, in, in a sort of roundabout way and really from the ground up through different experiences, traveling, working as a chef, but ultimately landing in this this really niche and unique space of, of wine collecting and, and this masterclass that you've developed. It's, it's really interesting. I think it's a part of the wine industry that we don't always get a lot of insights into. It's kind of like the, the world of the uber wealthy and rich. It's a little mysterious and behind closed doors. So I feel like we're getting really a, a sneak peek today on the, on the podcast. So really uh, interesting to hear, to hear your insights. Thanks. So Melissa, in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about how do we position the Italian wine category and Italian wines for this collector audience that you have such great insights into. And our three key takeaways for today's masterclass and what we're really excited to learn from you are, number one, what are collectors looking for when making seller acquisitions? What are their, some of their key considerations? What's going on behind the scenes? Uh, number two, what Italian wines are drawing the most attention right now from collectors? And number three, what are some of the trends in Italian wine in the collector world? So let's just dive right in. You, As you mentioned, you've developed this masterclass on wine and you're the first person certified by the bar in the valuation of wine. That, that's incredible. Congratulations. So tell us a little bit more about this process of evaluating wines and putting valuation against wine collections and how that works. Yeah, so I'm one of the only wine appraisers in the country that actually comes from a wine background. Most of the other wine appraisers in the industry are coming from like a fine art background, uh, which is really interesting. It's actually the closest parallel to wine as far as appraisals go. You know, you want to look at the provenance and how the pieces have been stored, who's owned them in the past. All of that is incredibly important as it is with wine. I take all of that into perspective, but working firsthand with collections, especially my exposure at KNL, where I got so much incredible exposure to so many labels, so many wines, authentic wines, which is another thing that's incredibly important, making sure you're not dealing with counterfeits. That's pretty much made it so that I was able to create the most efficient inventory software on the market. But just having hands on and knowing exactly what to look for on each label. I've worked with some master sommeliers in the past where I've brought them on to help with last minute projects if I'm out of the country. And Mm -hmm. I've seen that they have made mistakes in, in categorizing wines. So really proud of the work that I do. And as far as the wine appraisals go... I do desktop appraisals, so that's under the assumption that everything is under perfect condition. I also work in sellers hands-on where I'm able to look at you know, fill levels if they come in the original wooden containers, original tissue papers, checking out the provenance, checking to make sure that they are not counterfeit uh, from what I can tell. So a lot of that goes into what I do, how I do the appraisals. There are some really key uh, technologies out there. Wine Searcher is probably the best that most of us rely on in the industry for looking at fair market valuations. Got it. Okay, so you're using tools that you have from your experience, you know, working at KNL, but also with Wine Searcher and bringing all that background together. And I think it is interesting that you said that you're one of the only or the only wine appraisers with actually a wine background. That's that's somewhat surprising to me. And I think 
obviously it seems like a unique edge for, for you in this space as well. Yeah, there's only two other gentlemen that I know in the industry that come from a wine background and, and they actually spend most of their time in Hong Kong. Interesting. Okay. Well, tell us us a little bit about this collector audience that you're working with. I know you're based in California, uh, in Northern California, Napa, but where are they living mostly? Who are you working with? Like, just tell us a little bit about more about who this audience is. So most of my clients are based on the peninsula, otherwise known as Silicon Valley, and then also wine country. I'm right between kind of Sonoma and Napa right now. And then I also have clients all around the country with a focus on New York and New Jersey, Florida, uh, Chicago, Connecticut, uh, LA. So kind of all over the Texas market is one that I'm looking at getting into as well. And they run the gamut. Some of them are some of the more historic winery owners in Napa Valley and Sonoma and then uh, other ones are ones that are in the tech industry and venture capital and new money, old money, but primarily we're looking at kind of the, the gentlemen in the 60 plus range that have been working around wine in you know different aspects, whether they are whining and dying their, dining their potential clients, or they start collecting because of exposure from their parents or their grandparents. Typically that's, that's what most of my collectors look like. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That's kind of, I think what we would expect, um, you know, the, the key, the key five markets, that older demographic, are you starting to see, I mean, we, we talk a lot now about changing generations, changing wine consumer, are, we, are you starting to see a younger collector audience emerge in any of the spaces you're working in, or is it still really predominantly led by that 60 plus older demographic? It's a very, very, very small subset of collectors that are new, I would say in like the 30, early 40 range. It's, okay. it's really interesting to me. It's just doesn't seem to be as much a part of their lifestyle yet, but I'm hoping with cultural phenomenons like the um, white Lotus, you know, making everybody all of a sudden obsessed with Sicily and Sicilian wines that things like that are going to kind of help open up this market for us. Yeah, we, we hope so because definitely for the future of the industry, we need, new consumers kind of coming into that space. Do you think there's any opportunities that wineries, Italian or not, can tap into to engage a younger collector audience? Or you mentioned cultural phenomenons like the White Lotus being opportunities, but do you think there are other key opportunities that maybe we're missing as an industry in order to engage that, that new collector audience? I really think that the big designation are going to be experiential events and Mm -hmm. being able to do, you know, private luncheons, private dinners, something beyond just cave tours and, you know, standing room, tasting rooms. But then there also needs to be something where we're reeling in what these costs are. So Napa Valley 
prices are insane to get into some of these wineries just to taste the wines. And then you're lucky right. to get like a cheese and charcuterie plate, but you're spending well over a hundred dollars just for the opportunity mm-hmm. to taste these new released wines, which it's not super educational. It's not the best uh, way to sell wines. You know, if you're going to be doing an experience like that, for me, especially in these really, really high bracket categories, I want to be able to taste library wines next to the new releases. I want to see, you know, if I'm going to invest in a $200, $400 plus bottle of wine, I want to see what it's going to look like in 10, 20, 50 years and say, okay, it's going to be worth me spending this much money on a case of wine where I'm ideally not going to touch it for that long. And then just, you know, a really incredible experience. I was just at a winery recently where there's this beautiful view over the valley and the hospitality was amazing. It wasn't just this really stuffy experience. You just you felt so much love towards the brand when you leave. And I think that's the same thing. I don't think that a lot of uh, people realize when you go to Europe, it's not like standard tasting rooms in California mm-hmm. and Washington, where you can just make a quick call or see an open sign and just walk in. You actually need to plan these months in advance in order to visit these right. wineries. And for those of us in the industry, we're used to having everything kind of preset for us, prearranged where we're going on a buying trip or things like that. So when you go as a consumer, we're definitely spoiled. <laughs> yeah, we're totally spoiled. But when you go as a consumer, it's like, what do you mean? I can't just walk in here and, and taste the wine <laughs> and sit down with you and have your like homemade charcuterie from the boars you just killed in your vineyards. You know, so it's, uh, <laughs> so knowing that is really important too. I've run into that in Bordeaux where I ran into a group of young people from uh, Silicon Valley that were visiting and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to go wine tasting in Bordeaux. I said, do you have appointments set up? And they said, no, we're just going to drive around, go into places. And I just had to say, it's not set up the same way it is in Napa Valley. You you have to make plans well in advance. So knowing right. that if the Italian market wants to be selling to collectors in the U.S., that they should really be like planning a visit to Napa Valley to see how we do things here because we do things really, really, really well. I learned to appreciate that. And then being able to offer, you know, these incredible experiences. I think Antonori had a really good example when I visited several years ago. Okay. Yeah. So just the the experiential component, adding more value to the tasting experience, um, more educational value. I like, you know, also what you mentioned as adding in those library wines and, you know, older vintages into the tasting as you marketing wines to people that are meant to be seller in age it is important for them to understand the potential of those wines as they age so i think that that seems like a no-brainer and a really valuable insight from your experience so speaking of the wines let's just dive into talking a little bit more about what are you seeing among the collector audience that you're working with in terms of the wines they're collecting is it the tried and true classics are you seeing any new categories emerge and we'd also love to hear of course what's trending in the Italian wine category in your space. Right. So the biggest 
categories I'm seeing growth on right now for collecting are vintage champagne and burgundy, of course. But then also we're seeing a kind of a spike in Nebbiolo and Barolo. Hmm. And people are getting more away from Bordeaux, sadly for me, as someone that's a, a huge, you know, Bordeaux file. And the Bordeaux blends of Italy, the big, big super Tuscans that were the most sought after for a long time. I think that those are starting to take a step back. And instead, we're seeing Barolo producers really, really come to the forefront, be the wines that are snatched up the fastest, and they're also increasing in value the fastest. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Soldero, which will always be one of the tops. And then also Quintarelli. Quintarelli is so sought after that it was the focus of a major theft in the Los Angeles area earlier this summer. So, you know, those are, those are two big ones, but I would say that Barolo category in general, some Brunello to Monticello's are going to be up there, but that's, those are the trends that I'm seeing are people are getting away from the big, 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 bold wines and going more towards Mm -hmm. the, more elegant burgundy and Amberolo, you know, Nebbiolo based wines. Yeah. And that seems generally like a trend in consumption too, not just in the collector space, but just, uh, you know, in restaurants and retail as well, that people are moving towards lighter styles of wine across the board. What do you think are some of the reasons why that is? Well, I think diet has a lot to do with it as far as Americans finally hopefully realizing that you want to enjoy wine with food and with those bigger mm-hmm. wines, they're not going to go with everything versus a Pinot Noir right. and a are going to be much more food friendly. They're lower in alcohol. You know, they might not age as long, but I've had incredible Barolos from the sixties that are still really beautiful mm-hmm. and lively So I think that that has a lot to do with it, but I just appraised two collections back to back and I was amazed at the range between Burgundy and Bordeaux and that Bordeaux had basically plateaued and Burgundy were just Mm. off the charts. That's, that's it. But then you also, like I mentioned, White Lotus and uh, Stanley Tucci, you know, between those two shows, there is a huge uh, spike in Sicilian wine interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting as well. I know we've definitely seen that that love affair with Sicily boom over the last couple of years with everything. With you know, obviously going back a little further, Etna wines, but now just more generally the the entire island with with the tourism, and that goes back to what you said earlier about experience as well. I and mean, there's more Americans sort of visiting Sicily now than ever before because of that cultural phenomenon. And then they're coming back from their vacations and their trips and probably drinking more Sicilian wine. So it, it shows you that the power of those cultural moments. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. How about for the future? I mean, we talked about Sicily as a category that's up and coming within, within the space, but um, you know, Italy, but maybe just more generally as well for collectors. Like what do you see as some of the future trends 
outside of the classic categories that that we you know typically think of champagne bordeaux burgundy barolo do you see any other interesting categories on the rise for the wine industry for the collector audience yeah specifically well, for the collector audience i think that there's definitely going to be a lot more interest in spirits you know whiskey has obviously been a big one but you see this insane growth with things like chartreuse where you can't find bottles on the shelf anymore um, there's a whole black market going on for them i think something might similar might happen for amaros actually where there's going to be hmm. you know a a collector that's going to focus on you know these terroir driven products where you know it literally is the the herbs and the flowers and the spices that are grown in those regions made from wines from those regions a couple of my collectors they have Canatos in their collection. And I think that those are going to continue to age beautifully and just get more and more interesting. And the production level for them is so small that I think that long term, that might be a really, really interesting category to follow. And then as far as other regions, I don't know, it's, um, it's really interesting to me to see the direction of the market and you know obviously these natural wines aren't something that are ageable or collectible i think there might be a couple of categories uh, or a couple of producers where people might want to collect them but overall you know you need a shelf stable product so minimal intervention is definitely going to be the key going forward Uh, i don't think natural wine is going to be something Mm -hmm. that I advise people to collect minimal intervention, I think is always going to be important, making sure that, you know, everything's sustainable and see things that aren't over oaked or have a lot of additives and things like that, that we've seen over the last 20 some years and, you know, producers in Napa Valley in particular, you know, they're getting away from that. They're showing a little bit more restraint in some of them. That's that's definitely mm-hmm. something of interest. And then as we saw at Wine and Spirits Top 100 event recently, you know, there's a, a huge interest in island wines, you know, those wines from the Canary Islands that I think we are all really, really fascinated by. You know, but again, it just it goes back to, to quality, but then also exclusivity is huge as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting what you said about the Chartreuse and Amaro categories in particular. I mean, we know that spirits and consumption has been on the rise and, and taking away some market share from, from wine consumption. Like you said, that, that they still have that terroir-driven approach. So they provide a collector or wine consumer with some of those same values, which is which is interesting to think about that in, in the space. And But I yeah, I think your point too about that the natural wine space and the collector world is is well taken too because that's a category we've seen a lot of excitement and energy over but what's the kind of sustained future of it will be interesting to see for sure well melissa now we're getting to the end of the episode so we do our rapid fire quiz each episode uh just to help our listeners really you know master the u.s market which is what we're here to do so ask three questions and if you can do your best to answer these in one sentence or less that would be great so question number one what is your number one tip for mastering the u.s wine market i would say experiential 
events, whether you're inviting buyers or consumers to your winery and providing in-person opportunities, those are what are going to stick with people for a lifetime. That's going to get people really, really passionate about selling your products. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. Question number two, what is something you might have told your younger professional self about working in the wine industry? Um, I mean, it's, it's something I tried to do, wasn't always financially able to do until fairly recently, but traveling as much as possible so that you get that firsthand experience with the products that you're selling. And we can all read books and watch shows Mm -hmm. about wines and even taste them in person. But until you visit those regions and get a true understanding of the terroir, the local cuisine, the people, the winery, you know, that's what, that's what sells. And that is information and education you can always go back to. So taking any opportunity to travel to the wine regions within the U.S. and outside of the U.S. I think is the most important thing. Mm, That's really, really great advice. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of travel, what is your favorite travel hack when you're doing market work and, and traveling for work specifically? Oh, God, I've got entire blog posts on hacking uh, travel for wine. My number one thing, this is people think I'm crazy for it, but I take the no-dose caffeine pills. It's 200 milligrams of caffeine. It's the same as a cup of coffee, but it doesn't mess with your palate. Mm, And I, you know, have something in my stomach at the beginning of the day. You want to have, you know, something solid and then take a no-dose, go through the tasting. Sometimes depending if I'm doing, you know, back-to-back winery meetings, these are long, hard days, as we know. And so totally. take another one at lunch. And um, and usually just those two will get me through the whole day without having to stop and have coffee and mess with my palate. The, the alcohol from the wine tends to even out the whatever jitters I would get from the no-dos. But there's also a great supplement called... Uh, it's actually called No Jet Lag. It continues to sell mm. out on Amazon. But I discovered that before my first trip to Italy in 2016, and I have not gotten jet lag since. It's just a homeopathic tablet that you take every two hours on the plane. And man, has that really been a game changer for me. What's it called? No Jet Lag? Yeah, it's just called Did No Jet say? Lag. Yep. No jet lag. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Okay. I can't believe this is the first time I'm hearing about that. That sounds incredible. Last year's wine and spirits as sommelier ran up to me and gave me the biggest hug. He's like, those were like life changing for me on my trips this last year. Like glad to know that people in the industry are taking advantage of them. Good to hear. Good to hear. Well, they sound like they, they come in handy. I'm definitely going to add them too to my list for sure. Well, Melissa, thank you again so much for being here today on the Italian Wine Podcast. How can our listeners connect with you? Uh, Enotrius.com is probably the best. It's E-N-O-T-R-I-A-S.com. There's a link to the Wine Collecting Masterclass there. I'm also on TikTok at Enotrius. Do some little videos on wine and wine collecting there. And then Instagram is is Wine Chef. It's a lot of like personal consumption stuff, but it's a fun way to follow along, see what I'm eating, drinking. Amazing. All right. 
Well, fantastic. Thank you again for being here today. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me today. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Masterclass US Wine Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, hit the like and follow buttons wherever you get your podcasts.